This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your tablet, smartphone, and desktop. Support the show and get a free audiobook of your choice by visiting audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by TrekFan. TrekFan isn't just a Star Trek fan club, it's a challenge. You will explore new places, learn new things, and collaborate with other fans to solve puzzles, complete real-life mission objectives, and win great prizes. And in the spirit of an enlightened future, TrekFan is absolutely free. Not just free to play, but completely free. Find out more by visiting fm.trekfan.org. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Want a standard orbit, Mr. Chekhov, and take us in. I said. You will obey. It is the word of Landrew. Joy to you, friends. Welcome to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated show about the original Star Trek series. This is a show where we dive into the characters, concepts, cliches, and other things that don't start with C about the original series. My name is Drew, or Landrew. I'm the TOS editor for the network. And with me today is my co-host Mike from Commentary Trek Stars. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. And very special guest star, con expert, John Tenuto. Hi, guys. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Now, we did a, a Space Seed commentary, um, well, like a month or two ago. And now we're, we're finally returning for our second commentary. Mm-hmm. This one on... The Wrath of Khan. The Wrath of Khan-mentary, I guess you could say. Uh, We're going to rap about the rap about the Wrath of Khan. Yep. The Wrath of Khan. <laughs> <laughs> so we're actually going to be watching the theatrical cut of the movie, which is the version... Because which, Drew is an idiot. Yeah, yes, I yeah, know. Yeah. This, is, this is the version which is on the Blu-ray, and then it's also on Netflix and uh, the original DVD release. So... You can find it in any of those places. If you only have the director's cut, because, you know, that's what makes sense. Um, <laughs> it's not in the box set. I'm sorry. I didn't think about it. Okay, okay, whatever. Um, if, you, if you only have the director's cut, that's fine. Just whenever you get to a scene, which we're not talking about, pause it for a few seconds and then, you know, whatever. Or just don't or, watch the movie while yeah. you're listening to us. That works perfectly fine. Hey everybody, we split this commentary in half after recording. This half of the commentary runs with the movie from 13 seconds to 1 hour, 2 minutes, and 48 seconds, just as Terrell is saying how Khan went wild in the regular one scientists. 20 seconds of music has been added to warn the listener when the split comes. So if you, if you guys are ready, we'll, we'll get started. We are starting uh, just after the Paramount logo fades to black completely, which is about 13 seconds in on the Blu-ray. I imagine it's similar on the uh, Netflix and stuff and the Laserdisc. So if you guys are ready, we'll give a countdown and start it up. Ready? All right. Ready. All right. Three, two, one, start. Excellent. Paramount Pictures presents. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you're watching it on Laserdisc, let us know because that's awesome. Yes. Yes. So okay. imagine John has it on Laserdisc and DVD and Blu-ray all at the same time, and he's going to point out the subtle little differences we've never noticed. Yes, I, I have all the I have all the versions. Even if I don't have the format, I don't have the format for a Laserdisc, but the, I still have it because it's great. It's like a record. Yeah. <laughs> I've got the my my friends brought me the first disc of the motion picture on video disc. 
Oh wow! Wow! Like the analog laser yeah. disc thing that that one existed. that like ran off of like a needle or something like that. Right. Yeah. Well, I just have the first disc though, so I don't know what happens afterward, and I don't have a laser disc or a video disc player to do it. So even though this is the theatrical cut of the movie, we've already seen one change to it from what was originally in theaters, and that it says Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan instead of Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. Yeah, yeah this is the, um, the music uh, people would be hearing if they were listening to it uh, is, uh, of course, by James Horner who is, uh, you know, one of the big themes throughout the whole film is that the movie was originally uh, going to be produced by the TV side of Paramount. They weren't quite sure whether this was going to be a feature film or a TV movie of the week. In fact, it originally started out as a TV movie of the week. So a lot of the people that worked on it um, behind the scenes were, were really TV people given their first chance uh, as the production went along and, and, and they realized what they were getting back and what they had and what, you know, as things were turning out that this really needed to be a full blown motion picture. Um, you know, you get a lot of people who, um, who worked on TV, uh, and, and maybe had never worked on films before or had only worked on a few films like James Horner had only done a few, or there's Gain Rescher's, uh, title on, uh, the screen as I'm looking at it there. And he was a Emmy award winning, uh, TV cinematographer, and this was his first motion picture. So uh, a lot of the names that were, that are familiar to us now when Star Trek two ran in theaters, um, the, you know, we were watching it in 1982, uh, a lot of the names were unfamiliar, or if you were familiar with them, it was from the TV side of things. And uh, that goes along with Nicholas Meyer there, whose credits on the screen, um, with his idea that art thrives on limitations, that, uh, that uh, you know, if you have too much money, too much time, too many special effects, uh, unlimited resources, uh, it, may, it may squander a kind of opportunity and creativity. And I think this film's a great example of that. Yeah, I've always been curious about that because I've heard that, you know, this originally was maybe not intended to be a TV movie, but that was certainly an option which was on the table. And I, I was curious as to when it was decided to make it a theatrical motion picture because, I mean, they shot it in anamorphic widescreen, which is something that you would never do if you were planning on showing it on television. Um, do you know when that, when that happened? Yeah, before the cameras rolled, was the the, this, the decision was made. In fact, it's pretty uh, interesting. One of the documents that we have from our, our research, my wife and I, is uh, the um, the you know the budget as it was with television, and then the idea of kind of skirting over to 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 do it as a film, and then how the prices increased. So you know, Captain Kirk's um, civilian outfit that he's wearing, you know, when he's opening his birthday present, you know, was originally a couple hundred dollars on the TV side and buff, bumped up to like three or $4,000 on the movie side. So when it was on the TV side, it, when it was on the TV side, it still had a pretty healthy budget. It was, it was budgeted at, uh, uh, around seven or $8 million. So it was still a pretty heavy, uh, budget, but uh, when they moved it over to the film side, you know everything increased, and so the budget went eventually to about eleven million dollars, still a third of what Empire Strikes Back cost. And um, you know, there's even you know the, we can get into it as we go through, but there's so many cost-saving measures that they took. One is that 
you know, the, uh, the Klingon footage that you just saw was from the motion picture. Why not reuse it? You know, <laughs> um, anything where they could save money, they did because they, they, in the eight, in the eighties, you know, big giant science fiction films were costing, you know, 20 and $30 million. And this was only about $11 million. Mm-hmm. So here we have the Kobayashi Maru test. Uh, I think it's a, a really good cold open to the, to the movie. Um, definitely had me fooled when I was watching it for the first time. Is it true that they added this to like kill Spock right off just because the spoiler had been released? Well, there were, you know, there were, uh, many, many versions of the script. Um, the first sort of written document for the movie was an outline by producer Hart Bennett, um, in 1980, actually, that was called uh, The War of the Generations, which is interesting considering Next Generation's, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, legacy. But um, in that story, Kirk, uh, there's a rebellion on a Federation colony. Uh, he goes there, uh, Kirk and the Enterprise. There's no Spock in that outline. Uh, it's not even a script. It's, it's a couple-page outline. But he rescues Carol Marcus, whose son is David, who's, you know, Kirk's son also. And he's the leader of this rebellion. What, what they find out is that the true power like behind the rebellion is Khan. Um, and uh, so David joins with Kirk and they defeat Khan. And that's, that was the, the original kind of genesis, excuse me for the story. Um, and then, but the, the first script um, uh, was written by Jack B. Sowards in 1980 called uh, the Omega system. And uh, there's some similarities Um there is a con uses spiders instead of eels. Um, Carol Marcus was Dr. Janet Wallace from um, uh, the Deadly Years Turnabout? episode, oh, the Deadly, original show. Deadly okay. Yeah, Deadly Years, right? Yeah, sorry, yeah. And um, uh, and the actress was, you know, the actress who played her in the original show was going to play her in the movie. Um, Khan has mental powers, you know, uh, in addition to physical powers. Um, and more, most importantly, in that draft of the script, Marla MacGyver's is alive. Um, but Savick is in there, and Savick's a male in that script. Um, and uh, there is a there is kind of a, a test sequence, a training sequence that's in that that script. Um, the, one of the interesting things was the Reliant was a Constitution class ship, and uh, they realized right away they needed to make the ships look different. You know, and they actually got down to writing the scripts, but. Uh, uh, so the idea of putting a scene like this was was there pretty early, um, but uh, there was the in in one of the versions of the script, Spock dies in the middle of the film, and really everybody kind of rallied against that idea because you wouldn't have been able to recover from that, and so you still had an hour to go uh, in the movie. It was sort of a psycho death, you know, where you don't expect it, and it was going to be in the middle, and. Um, uh, but they decided against that eventually moved the death sequence to the end where it was in all of the Meyer versions of the script. Was, was something like that line right there where he says, aren't you dead? Was, was that added late in the process? Like after. Well, that's all that sort of tongue in cheek, uh, Meyer humor, you know, that's, that's the, the, all the, really good lines here are <laughs> come from Nicholas Meyer. And, you know, that's just sort of playing a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's a tweak at the audience. This, that, that sequence certainly does disarm you. If you went into this film, having heard rumors that Spock was going to die and, and that, that does function um, not only to introduce the Savic character who is intended, um, especially in the, the, 
the script ver the scripts they're not necessarily in what was filmed but as certainly in Meyer's uh script uh the the big one was is like from September 25th 1981 and that that's the one that's very close to the movie but there's a lot in there that isn't filmed or was filmed and edited out and Savick was a much bigger had a much bigger role because she was really going to replace Spock I mean that was the intention of that character and so um but you know he's playing with you here, where you're sort of you're disarmed now. You think, oh, okay, see that they they got it wrong in the newspapers, and and Spock's going to survive, and you kind of go along with the film. And... So, as as someone who remembers seeing this theatrically at the time, and who was a huge Star Trek fan back then, like I'm curious, had you heard the rumors, and did you believe them, and? When you saw that, you know, I guess if when you saw that that sequence, did it do its job? Were you like, mm, there's some doubt in in my mind now as to whether or not Spock is actually going to die in this thing? Yeah, I mean, you know, it it really was, uh, you know, it, you got to, uh, well, you know, when we put ourselves back into that time frame with no internet, no, um, you know, really no no source of information, honestly. Um, other than the official fan club newsletter that uh, or magazine that uh, Dan Madsen had, um, and you know fanzines, and there were some good fanzines out there. Um, in fact, Mensa has a had a had and has a fanzine, um, and uh, for Star Trek Mensa members, and they they had a relationship. The woman who ran that had a relationship with uh, her name is Val Jagger, and she had a relationship with. Uh, you know, the Star Trek II production company. And so they, they were, they, they, you know, you could get news in places like that, but really uh, Starlog, of course, but there was no, you know, there was no internet. There was no, you know, uh, gossip, the TMZ type things. Pictures beforehand were much more easily controlled. And so, you know, it was easier to fool an audience in a way um, back then or, or, you know, hide something from the, uh, from the audience back then. And so, you know, certainly when I saw it, I had heard uh, that, you know, Spock was going to die. There had been a big, very big article um, in the Wall Street Journal um, in October of 81. So a good, you know, six, seven months before the film's out, actually written by Steve Sansweet, of all people. Um, who's the big, who's the big Star Wars collector. And, and it was a whole article about, um, fans taking out a, uh, a, uh, ad in the variety magazine, you know, basically telling Paramount, if you kill Spock, like we heard you're going to, you're going to lose X amount of dollars. They had done the study. <laughs> um, and this whole article was about that. And the, and it's interesting reading the article cause he got, he got a lot of the details, right about the film. There were some things that were kind of off or scenes that were moved around. And, um, and actually Leonard Nimoy saw that article when he was in China filming a movie. And, um, that was sort of his first inclination that there was going to be sort of a controversy about this. So, you know, it, it was certainly out there. Um, and you could find out that, that, that Spock was going to die in major newspapers and things like that. But, but in terms of getting confirmation and, all of that. No. So I think that scene really was a stroke of genius to put that there. Uh, and, and, and if you had heard about it, it kind of assaged your, your fears and it helped. What, what it really did is it helped you sort of forget about that and get lost in the story and, and not focus on whether Spock was going to die or not. Did, as, as a fan back then, were you one of the people who was like, 
if Spock dies, you die? Or were you like, hey, man, you know, this is a story. There might be a legitimate reason to kill this character. And, uh, you know, let's wait and see what they what they do before passing judgment. Well, you know, I was just excited to have another Star Trek movie. I mean, the, the first film was... You know, you know. Again, putting it in its time, uh, not thinking of it in context of the other five. You know, the other five original films uh, that make up the six. Um, you know, it, it was. I mean, it was enormous that first film. It was grandiose. It was the special effects were, you know, frankly as good or better than Star Wars in many instances. And despite all the problems that they had, I mean, they had a, just the whole film was big and enormous. But, you know, of course, everybody sort of felt a little bit cheated on the character side of it. You know, it was kind of special effect focused and and it wasn't really the, the characters didn't quite seem right. And, um, you know, it was much more a 2001 uh, movie than it was a Star Trek movie in a way. So it was it, it was great that there was the first movie, but I think there was a lot of fear. At least I had a lot of fear that, well, that was it. They did the movie. It's done. Uh, Star Wars had really, you know, it was still going like a like a like an unstoppable train, um, and uh, so it sort of seemed like well, Star Trek, and then you started to hear, you know, oh, it's going to be a TV movie, and it's, you know, that it was a motion picture. I was just thrilled with, and and you know, again, the whole idea that we were going to have you know, 13 films and, and, you know, and, and all these franchises, we weren't thinking like that. I was just happy to have a second film. And if that was it, that was it, but it was great to have a second movie. And of course, when it came out, it was not only everything that I hoped for, it was everything Paramount hoped for, right? When the, when the movie premieres on January 4th, 1982, it premieres as the number one film of all time. It beats empire strikes back. It was the biggest opening ever for a movie. And, uh, um, you know, it was, it got huge critical, you know, acclaim and success and fans were, you know, most, not every, but most fans were really happy with it. So, um, and the way they handled the death well. So, um, I, I never had a problem with it. I was just sort of happy we were getting another movie. It was June 4th, 1982, just for the record. Um, now you were, you were there obviously, right? Opening day. Now, which, which, which theater did you go to? I'm, I'm a, big theater geek especially for chicago theaters which one did you go to i went to the esquire theater uh yeah i don't even know if that is is that still around thankfully no because they completely destroyed that theater it became a anyway um so back then it was if i'm not mistaken it was uh it had a balcony and everything like that that was like when it was one screen right yeah, it was a one screen, so we got to see it in, you know, all its glory. Uh, 70 millimeter, I'm sure. I mean, it's really going to see the film uh, not only is a wonderful memory with my dad. I mean, it, it, uh, my dad and I went to see it and, uh, and uh, you know, it was uh, so it has a special place in my heart for that reason. Um, but it also really introduced me to fandom. I mean, I, the, the reaction of the crowds, I, mean, I remember being in the bathroom before the film and people were talking in the bathroom like it was, you know, Picard's ready room, you know. Um, <laughs> it, it was, I mean, it was just up back and forth and yelling and screaming and excited and happy and, are you know, d- debating and everything like that. And I was like, what, who are these people? Like, you know, what what is that? Who, you know, there are people that are excited about this like me, you know. And, uh, and uh so I, you know, it was interesting to kind of 
just observe that whole the whole environment of the people that were there and, and the film and the and the audience reaction and the you know it's 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 sort of lost in today's world a little bit. I mean, I, I you know certainly I go see films on opening day, but in some ways it becomes a you know it's a simulacra of what it used to be. You know, I mean, I, you know, it's the seventh time we're seeing the Star Wars film on opening day. You know, it, it's it's not like those those first times. Everything else is just sort of a redo and a rehash and in many ways the this whole idea of going on opening day back then was just an unusual thing to begin with you know that kind of you know sort of starts with uh with in science fiction you know and at least with uh you know films like 2001 and so on going to see it on opening day but not it wasn't like that was part of film history you know to do that sort of thing as fans I'm wondering what the lurking variable is there, because when I heard that this was the movie which at the time set the record for the highest gross on opening day, that just did not compute with me because I I just don't see how it was a a larger gross than than uh, than motion picture even you know on, on opening opening weekend and and definitely I can't see how it would beat. Empire Strikes Back and I was thinking about it and thinking about sort of like my own personal experiences with it and like the the biggest phenomenon which I I could see in recent years the biggest jump was from Batman Begins to Dark Knight and the only reason why I I, I think that really happened like such a substantial increase was because of Heath Ledger you know and the fact that he had passed away shortly before the movie was released and I'm wondering do you think that that was part of why that opening weekend was so big was because everyone had heard that, you know, Spock had died. I mean, obviously it's a fictional com- character instead of a, an actual person, but, you know, did, do you think that had something to do with, you know, the reason why this was such a big success right out of the gate? Oh, sure. You know, the, uh, I think there's a, a, a series of, uh, uh, reasons that, that that came together. One was, you know, that it does he or doesn't he? Um, certainly, Spock to the general population is then and now uh, is the face of Star Trek, and so um, you know him dying would resonate even with the sort of casual fan or the person who sort of watched it, you know, on TV and, you know, reruns and things like that. It may not have been necessarily a committed fan. Um, and then, you know, it, it, it had Ricardo Montalban. We're seeing him here in his, this is actually the first scene he filmed when uh, the Botany Bay scene, his first appearance in the movie is also the first scene um, that he filmed. And, um, you know, he's bringing in an audience too. I mean, just, you know, the, 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 the film going audience, you know, he had, this is, was his return to movies and he had an audience fan base from uh, fantasy Island and his own films for, for, you know, since the 1930s really. And, uh, I also think a big part of it was the word of mouth. I mean, there, there was, you know, from critics, almost universal and, and critics like Pauline Kael and Roger Ebert, I mean, big, big critics, um, telling people to go see this film. And I think that all those things kind of come together along with the sort of built-in Trekkie audience that existed um, that helped push this film into the $14 million, which today, of course, that's, that's you know, that's a pre-sale, uh, you know, but it was, but back then that was a huge box office, that $14 million that they made. So, so now we're finally into Khan. 
And uh, so he he never takes off his right glove. Whose whose idea was that? Was that like a costume designer thing, or was that Ricardo himself? Well, the costumes were designed by uh, Robert Fletcher, who um, we had actually uh, asked Nicholas Meyer a couple questions about uh, the costumes, and we asked him what you know what place do costumes have in film, and he had a great answer, which was you know that they were shorthand to character. And so uh, he gave the example of Lawrence of Arabia, where whose army outfit is ill-fitting um, to symbolize that the army was ill-fitting to Lawrence, you know. Um, and, and Ricardo Montalban talked about the costumes, that the costumes really helped him figure out who Khan was at this time. That these were, as you, you can see on the screen, these were Prince's robes that had been tattered and destroyed, you know? So Robert Fletcher really deserves a lot of credit for um, his work on this film. And, and in fact, uh, uh, Nicholas Meyer had given him two kind of directives. One was he wanted new uniforms that were in the spirit of Prisoner of Zenda. So if you go back and look at that movie, the 1956 movie, you see an awful lot of similarity in the costumes. Um, and also that they, he wanted it to have a sort of naval feeling because Meyer felt that the that th this was Horatio Hornblower in space, not not even realizing that that was also one of Gene Roddenberry's conceptualizations or foundations for Star Trek was Horatio Hornblower. So uh, he, he actually uh, mentioned a joke that, that I thought was great, uh, this idea that the uniforms and the cot, especially the uniforms of Starfleet being naval influence. Um, he had said his wife, um, had called them nautical but nice, which I thought was a great joke, you know. Um, but the whole, the costumes were really one of those areas that Meyer had some freedom in because, you know, there's certain things that he was given by legacy. You know, you're getting Ricardo Montalban, which of course is a great, great person to have. But, you know, all the actors are the same. The enterprise is the same. I mean, there's certain trappings that had to stay the same, but there were other things that could change. And one of those were the costumes. And so costumes were really important uh, to the film, to the characters, especially to Khan there. Um, the idea of keeping the one glove on was, was Meyer's idea. Um, and he's never explained why, what, what the reason was. And, he, and he's promised never to explain why. Um, awesome. His reasoning is that whatever you, whatever you, whatever you and I think as the audience as to why Khan keeps that on is as valid as his reason. So what happens, you know, we tell you talks about this, what happens when you say, no, this is what I meant. Um, that doesn't negate, that shouldn't negate what the audience interpreted. So um, he's never, he's joked about what it meant. You know, he's given joke answers, but he's never given a real answer um, as to why, you know, so you're wondering, is there an injury there? Is there, you know, uh, is it a, you know, is it, uh, is it because he's, is it just something that's sort of strange enough that it makes you off put, you know, in sociology, we have the idea of when you create a, you know, like a tough guy image, one of the things you do is mess with symbols. You know, you wear your hat in a weird way, you wear sunglasses inside, you know, things like that, where the symbol becomes unreadable makes the person scary. And so by not, you know, what, when are you going to take that damn glove off? Why do you have that glove on? It just makes you nervous, you know? Um, and uh, it was a brilliant, just little things like that. You can add a lot to the character with a little item that, that you know, could have easily just been taken off and, and 30 years later we wouldn't have been talking about it, but here we are. 
this was the scene that, as a kid, scared me away from watching this movie in the first place. You know, I had heard about this, and I was like, I don't want to see this. This freaks me out. Still yeah, that's a big cardboard. It's a big sort of cardboard styrofoam ear that was blown up, a big giant one, about, about a person tall, half a person tall <laughs> or so. Uh, and that's how they did that sequence. You know, it was not even a, not even a real ear. Hmm. If that helps everybody listening, now who's still scared. <laughs> well, they you weren't looking, so now that's not going to help. Right. That's true. That's true. This is an interesting, in this sequence here, this whole Botany Bay sequence, um, there was a, a baby, uh, that was filmed. Um, the, that was going to appear twice in the movie. That was the first time the baby was going to appear. The idea was that uh, Chekhov uh, sees this this uh, well baby toddler really uh, this toddler's face, this kid's face in the porthole outside, and they see a crib in the Botany Bay, um, and that's you know that you know so obviously there's people there. And it's sort of meant to just put you at, you know, unease, like what's going on. And that was removed when the second sequence with the, with what's, what's known as the Khan baby, but it was not ever Khan's baby. It was one of Khan's people's kids. Um, well, we could talk about later on when that second scene was going to be there, but when they removed that second scene, they also removed that scene, but they did film that, uh, that moment. I have the sound file of that. Somebody from Italy has the sound file, but that that scene has never been shown on deleted scenes or anything. But it, it was filmed. Wow, that's really wow. cool. Yeah. So, so this a lot of this footage is stuff which was reused um, from the motion picture, and to me, it, it always more than anything, I thought it kind of was a perfect example of the power of editing. And how, you know, you can take footage and cut it together in a different way and make it, you know, much more effective in some senses, you know. And a heck of a lot shorter. Yeah, that's true. Speaking of scenes being shorter, um, this is right around the time of one of the, the additions to the director's cut. There's a lot of stuff with the midshipman first class peter pressman uh that's not in this version yeah that's oh real fast if you're looking right there when he's saying we'll see you there sir there's a kid with red there who's the tallest of the kids um on the same line as peter preston there that actor is uh is todd bryant who is who plays uh claw in star trek five just Hmm. to throw that in there uh but (laughs) sorry about that um yeah, there's, uh, yeah, the, Peter was supposed to have a much bigger role, uh, so that his death was more effective. And then, of course, it was established that, uh, he, you know, that he was Scotty's nephew. Um, and so he was given a little bit more, more of a line, you know, more lines here calling, uh, comparing, uh, Kirk to Tiberian Bat, you know, blind as a Tiberian Bat, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's, uh, it was one of the things that was put back in when, uh, Nicholas Meyer uh, took another pass at the films for uh, for the DVD. There's Todd Bryant again. He's all over this film. He's, you know, it's sort of the same five. There he is. You see, there he is. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same like six or seven cadets in, <laughs> in the in the scenes. Yeah, I can kind of see the uh, resemblance. You know, the forehead and whatnot. Um, 
what do you think about the the changes that were made? I know there are a lot of people who think that uh, the stuff which was put back in kind of doesn't need to be there. I, I personally like it myself, but uh, what do you think about the director's cut? Well, you know, I I, I kind of agree with uh, with Nicholas Meyer that you know you don't if you're well, you know, it it depends. I have to say, it depends. Um, he, he he sort of felt when you put the film out, it's done. You know. Um, but there were things that you could do choices he would have made had he had had control over the final edit. And so there's nothing, he, he didn't do any extravagant redo, you know, it was not, it was not an episode, you know, a star Wars situation or anything like that, or remastered star Trek or anything. Um, although I thought remastered star Trek was brilliantly done. Uh, but, um, so, you know, there, there isn't anything I think that's, that's distracting in a way. Um, you know, there isn't a big, you know, this, the enterprise isn't doing barrel rolls or there, you know, they didn't create a new explosion or anything like, you know, anything like that. It's all character stuff that was put back in. And I always like that. I like seeing that. I, you know, he would have, it would have been in there if he had had the ability to, you know, release his edit of the film initially or, you know, so I think like Star Trek six, where he put in the flashes of the people. Um, when Spock is mind melding and they're naming the conspirators and they put that in, it's a small thing, but it really adds to the film, especially for, you know, somebody like my parents or someone who are watching it, who don't remember who, you know, the, the Romulan ambassador nonplus is, you know, but they, they, but they, when they flash it, then you go, oh yeah, okay. It's that guy from earlier in the movie. And so I think those are the kinds of changes he added here. You know, Preston's death doesn't mean anything, uh, unless you have the context of who he is. And so I think by putting in more of that, that Kirk and him had an interaction um, that isn't, not in this version, but in the, that helps with the character. So he added all character stuff. And I think that that's, that's great. You know, now, if I'm not mistaken, uh, a lot of that footage was added into the television version of the movie, right? Yeah, that was the first time we got to see some of those. Um, that was when you got the the, the 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 different edit of the elevator scene, you know, where the, the dialogue is the same, but um, whether it's a two shot or a one shot changed. So there was the first time we kind of got a pass at uh, seeing what, what would have been added uh, was, was in when they did show it on TV. I think it was on ABC, if I'm not mistaken. Was everyone like, oh, my God, look. Look, new scenes. Or do people? Yeah, because we, we were. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh! Yeah, because we weren't used to that at all. It was, you know, Superman had done that. Superman, when it showed on TV, showed for eight days, four hours a day. No, I'm kidding. But they showed like uh, <laughs> it, they showed Superman over two nights. It was a four-hour extravaganza. You know, I mean, they were adding like a half an hour, thirty-five minutes worth of footage. I mean, that was incredible. And, and, you know, we didn't have DVDs and stuff back then and video, even videotapes. So, so really that idea of being able to see those, see those bonus scenes or to, you know, like when they re-edited the Godfather for television, it, it was an event to watch it on TV back then. And, um, you know, by adding those kinds of scenes, it made it more special. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. It was days and days of talking about it afterwards. Sure. <laughs> I'm still, I'm still talking about it now. It's <laughs> Did 
there was Jetta, who was played by John Vargas, and uh, I've never been able to confirm this, but I always thought that that character was, uh, it's only a guess, but I always wondered whether or not the character was named in honor of the Jedi, Jetta, Jedi. So. <laughs> I love this set with all the blinking and the flashing and the and the Genesis device itself. It's it it's so primitive. I mean, looking nowadays, um, you know, at how much information we can fit inside our iPads or whatever. I, I just love the big metal cylinders. Like, is that information or is that some kind of locking mechanism? It's like, it's just technology for technology's sake. And I love it. Yeah, it's great. The, the sets were all designed by uh, Joe Jennings and uh, Mike Miner. Um, Mike Miner huge huge important person to star trek he worked on the first film uh, he worked on the second film he worked on the original show even though he was very young at the time he he did loskeen uh in the tholian web he figured out how the tholian web could be made for television which was a astounding special effect at that time he designed the helmets uh, of the redesigned spacesuits, you know, when they moved from sort of the shower curtains to more like a regular spacesuit. Um, you know, he designed the helmet for that. Uh, Mike Marner was sort of all over Star Trek and he was all over Star Trek too. He, um, he helped design the Reliant. He, he's the one in, in the original, in that um, Jack B. Soward's version of the script, um, the Omega system, the Omega, the Genesis was called Omega and it was a, it was a, a planet destroying weapon the Federation had designed. And um, uh, Miner had said, you know what? The Federation would never design a, a weapon like that. You know, it, but, so it was Miner who suggested they call it Genesis and was the one who suggested it be a terraforming device that could be perverted into a weapon. So, uh, and then of course he did the sets. So him and Joe Jennings, Joe Jennings did phenomenal work on the motion picture. He had, he was, um, uh, an, an apprentice, um, to Matt Jeffries back in the original show. And, uh, so he worked on Star Trek, the motion picture, got nominated for an Academy award redesign. He was the one who really helped redesign the enterprise for the movies. And, um, so all the sets that you see, um, you know, those are just egg cartons and like, like, like packing cartons in the back there on the elevator and they spray painted them. Um, you know, they just, they're brilliant. They didn't have a lot of resources and they created some wonderful sets. A, a lot of credit has to go to the, the, the art department and to the camera operators. Um, Craig Denault, who moved the camera, Gain Reschner, who was the cinematographer, um, Kathy Colson, who also was, uh, uh, worked with the camera on this film. She she was she starred in Twin Peaks, but she was behind the scenes person at this time. And um, you know, the sixty five percent of the film is shot on the same set. It's the Enterprise Bridge, but because of set redesign, changing the way the camera moves, changing the lighting, all of that, it looks like two different ships and makes the film look much bigger than it actually is. In a lot and they're of ways, Skyping right now. Yeah. And, they are. <laughs> and that's how Skype is, actually. That's how it basically works for me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it it is kind of um interesting, like, you know, the sort of like looking at the parallels between, let's say, Nicholas Meyer and, and now what we're seeing with Roberto Orsi, where 
you know, Meyer had, I know, directed one movie before and Orsi hasn't done any. And there's a lot of people who are sort of critical of the decision to hire Orsi as the director for no other reason than that he's never done it before. And looking at this movie, I can kind of see how this would be a bit more suited to a inexperienced director in that it really does give you a chance to just sort of play with the art of directing as opposed to being bogged down by, you know, massive set pieces and visual effects and all that stuff. I mean, like you're saying, 65% of the movie is shot in the same scene, but at the same time, that's like a whole new set of challenges because like you're saying, you've got to find a way to make it look fresh and, and, and distinct from what you had just shot. And that can be difficult when you're confined like that. Yeah. He, you know, that's a, that, that's that limitations, you know, spurring on the creativity idea of Myers. I think, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, it, it, you know, one of the things I think any new director has to do, and I think, you know, he was, uh, he had directed a film before that. He certainly written movies, had been a storyteller in one way or the other, is to approach directing um, like it's a style, it's, it's, it's just a storytelling. So this may have been his sort of second feature film as a director, but it was not the second time he told the story. And I think that's part of a good director is being a storyteller and knowing how to tell a story. And I also think being willing to take suggestions from people when you're a relatively new director, or frankly, relatively new in anything in life, um, to, to listen to other people. So that great moment at the start of the film, when, when Kirk appears, you know, and he, the, these backlit and, you know, just a fantastic first appearance of the character, you know, that was something that I believe Robert Salen, who was the producer thought of and, and seeing, knowing a good idea when you when you see it, um, Nicholas Meyer took that idea and used it. So, you know, you, you, if you listen to the people around you, um, you know, uh, to their suggestions, that doesn't mean you always take them, but that you are open to people having a, a better idea. Um, I know that that was what many of the actors and the behind the scenes people said about this set, that the Star Trek two set was a place where anyone, the, the lighting person, Leonard Nimoy, uh, could go up to the director, the producer and say, what if we did it this way? And they might say, no, they might say, yes, they might try it, but it was a collaborative effort. And I think, um, you know, hopefully that, that those kinds of ideas will carry on into the new Star Trek film. I mean, just just in general, even without a first time, without being a first time uh, director, you know, the idea of being able to listen to the ideas of your collaborators is really important. And it seems like uh, the collaboration on this one pretty well because, like, a lot of the the key crew members who worked on this were then brought on to the day after to work with, with Meyer. So it must've been a good relationship, you know? Oh yeah. You know, and, and of course this was a chance for them to really show, to showcase what they could do, you know, to, to, to with limited resources, to be able to produce something that's of this quality that by the way, is Nicholas guest, who's the brother of the 
director and actor Christopher Guest. Oh wow! Um, he's he's in, he's in, he's one of the ones I call the cadet faces. There are certain cadets they always go to for a reaction shot, you know, so that you because they keep that theme alive through the whole, you know, uh, really through the whole film, right? I mean, everybody's got kids. Uh, Spock has a, a symbolic daughter. Kirk has an actual son. Um, uh, Khan has a symbolic son or real son, depending on who you want to believe. Um, here you could see the two of them together and, um, uh, the enterprise has children, right? The, the, has the, the cadets. So, I mean, it's the whole, the, that theme carries through and, 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 and that's there. But yeah, I, I think that, uh, um, you know, Nicholas Meyer deserves a lot of credit. He certainly, you know, the, the, the script is his script and, and, you know, of course it pieces together elements of previous versions too, but it's, this is really him you know, his words in a way. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it, he deserves an awful lot of credit for, for really saving the franchise, him and Harv Bennett, um, behind the scenes, um, all the people who worked with them who went on to work with them on other fe- uh, features and, and TV movies. And of course the actors, I mean, just the, everybody was, I think, uh, you know, did, did, did their best. Um, and it shows, you know, really shows. That that was something that I was going to ask you about is, you know, I mean, obviously, we all kind of know the story with, you know, Jack B. Sowards was credited with the screenplay. Um, but, you know, Meyer did a substantial rewrite. I mean, you, you've you read, uh, what, a lot, if not all of the, the drafts of this thing. Um, would you say that, that Sowards deserves screenplay credit? Like, or or like, how would you... I feel like I've asked you this before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I do. I think you know. I, I certainly there's a there's 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 beats within the film that are the same. So I mean, it's not he he certainly. I, you know, I think what it should have read was, you know, uh, Nicholas Meyer and Jack B. Sowers or whoever they. I don't know exactly how they work that in Hollywood. You know, who goes first or whatever. But mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the 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 some of the themes of the film are evident in the Sowers drafts um you know there was another draft that was done by samuel peoples who who actually did the did where no wrote no man where no man has gone before the second uh, star trek pilot um in 65 he wrote that and that that was called the new star trek and that was you know that was wildly different that um uh there's no con at all uh there's two characters named sojin and moray um Terrell, there's no Terrell. Terrell, uh, basically, what Terrell does in the film is is Sulu plays that role. Uh, there was a polar bear looking alien uh, called Thal Actos, of course, because we need one of those. Um, and then Carol Marcus has like a little Rubik's cube that follows her around. Uh, that's like Tron's bit, you know? Yes, no, yeah. I mean, it's it's really <laughs> different, R- really, really different. And that one. There's not a lot of that that survived, but even in that one, it was peoples that switched Savick over to a woman. So there, there's little pieces that are, you know, uh, even in the versions of the scripts that just, you know, wholesale were discarded in a way. Um, the there's ver- there's little elements that kind of come in um, into the final version of it. But really, what Myers did was he took the be- Meyer took the best 
portions of those scripts and then created this whole thing around it. So, um, you know, and he did so, I think, and if I'm, if I have my timeline, right, just something in like 10 days, which is just incredible. No one thought he could do it. You know, that it takes, it takes people months and months and months to work on rewrite these scripts. And then he turned it around within less than two weeks. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, uh, but I also give him credit. He, 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 said he knew that if his name was going to be on the film that would have produced a delay um that may have stopped the film from being produced and so um he gave up the credit he really really deserved um for for his script um and uh and um you know uh, his name only you know, you'll see his name on 4 and 6 you know yeah So the scene, um, if I'm not mistaken, that was the first CGI sequence in in movie history. Is that true or not? It's so, yeah, I believe it's it's certainly it's it's one of the first ones, if not the first one, um, and uh, also a unique use of sound too in that scene. The uh, I mean, first of all, I remember seeing that in theaters, and it was disorienting. Uh, you know, uh, anybody who's never seen Wrath of Khan on a truly big screen, not not just on the big screen in their home. Any and 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 luckily, it's a film that they kind of a lot of theaters. You know, if they're doing retro things or whatever, they'll show that. I think they showed it at uh, I think the Music Box, if I'm not mistaken, like a year ago or something like that. Um, so it's something yes. to always watch for. You know, and to see that on the big screen that that is so disorienting it's it was amazing um never seen anything like that before i mean it was so good they used it in the next you know <laughs> each of the next films you know <laughs> we're not giving that scene up we're using it you know uh and they show that to you but the, the sort of sound effects uh, if you want to call it music that plays over that was done by a man named craig huxley who was a child actor who acted under the name craig hundley who plays uh, two characters in the original Star Trek. He played Kirk's nephew, Peter, um, and he also played uh, one of the, the children and then the children shall lead. And then he went on to do, uh, became famous for uh, really uh, mixing sound uh, and music together and created something called the blaster beam, which is really the voice of V'ger that you hear in the first movie. And then he did that kind of bizarre, interesting sort of sound effect music you hear playing over the Genesis effect. So he also had a long history with Star Trek too. I did not know Star, that. Star Trek, Star Trek also instead of Star Trek too. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Kirk invented the blaster beam sound effect. Right. Peter Kirk wow. is responsible for, for V'ger, right? He had a horrible childhood. <laughs> Parents, father was killed be by his a fault. pancake and he created V'ger. I think that's this what I my, said. I'm going to say this over and over again, but this is my favorite scene. This is oh, with one uh, big happy fleet. It is kind of great, like just the, in terms of the strategy and everything. Like I, I always thought it was was really cool how you've got this where you know the Enterprise, you know, just gets pummeled, and then Kirk uses his his experience and everything to outwit. Khan and, and turn it back onto him and th there, there's just something which I, I've always found so cool about that just the strategy involved and everything and 
and and also you know sort of like the choreography of of things and stuff it's it's a really really well done sequence yeah, it's beautiful it's um the uh you know so many things to say here i mean you're looking at the same set you know you just looked at a few seconds ago um you know and it doesn't look the same at all i mean it's amazing just the lighting it's and, interesting uh, that the it, that the bad guy's ship is lit well because you'd mm-hmm. expect it to be the other way around. Yeah, it's smart, you know. In a way, it's it's it sort of plays with your expectations, you know. It, uh, you know, goes against the symbolism of, that you would normally associate with uh, with good and evil, you know. And uh, um, you know, just even that. I mean, that special effect. Now you look at it; it still looks great. But I mean, back then. That was really again ILM, uh, you know, at their best in a way. You know, when they were working with models and, uh, you know, just the leaps and bounds that Empire Strikes Back had put them through taught them so much um, that they were able to produce these kinds of sequences. Uh, you know, uh, with the with the spaceship battle. So I mean, you know, outside the ship it's great. Inside the ship it's great. Um, you know, and here you really get that naval feel. You know, the, the bulkheads coming down and the you know the the language of the the scene here. Um, you know, it's funny that when when people were talking about whether or not Khan, whether or not um, John Harrison was Khan in the new film, one of the things they they said that well, one of the reasons it couldn't be is because he was wearing a Starfleet outfit. But you know, when you when you look at the bridge of the Reliant, they're all wearing. I mean, Khan Khan always in each of the his appearances wears something Starfleet, right? Um, you know, where he got the belt buckle he wears around his chest, we don't know. But, um, you know, he, he has that. His crew wears the the the, the jackets. He wears the jacket of, of Starfleet in this film. He wears an engineer's uniform in Space Seed. Um, you know, so that's part of the character is his almost taking a trophy in a way. Uh, from the people that he defeats, and uh, and I love that. That that's a uh, when when Kirk Dunn does the flap, um, you know, there's an example of the costume helping to to give you some character, you know, and uh, and and adding to the character. And that's something that the costumes do in um, Prisoner of Zenda that they go they come down like that. And hmm. uh, what, what Meyer wanted the costumes to have pockets because he wanted the characters to be able to put their hands in their pockets, but they didn't have the money to make pockets um, because it would have been too expensive. So, so in in lieu of pockets, we get the casualness is the, is the, the, the flap coming down, which I think is great. Yeah. The flap is really what sells it to me. I always thought that that was sort of a great, um, reflection of, of the character's state of mind in a sense, you know, you could tell, you know, how, how a person was feeling or, or, or what position they were in, in terms of their arc or whatever, by whether or not their flap was down, you know, even when it was used to like great effect in like Star Trek six, when, you know, uh, bones rips open his, his flap and everything like that to express, you know, disgust. Yeah. Frustration. (laughs) It is great. I, I I always (laughs) loved like, in the mid '90s or something like that, uh, for whatever reason, the uh, baseball uniforms that the White Sox were wearing were made by Wilson, and they, you know, were buttoned-up jerseys, and they were 
black jerseys, but the inside was white. So there would be times where like a couple of the players they'd wear with the first couple buttons undone and you could see the white underneath. I'm like, oh man, <laughs> that is the best ever. I've always wanted one of those so I could get my, my Star Trek White Sox jersey, but <laughs> unfortunately they don't make them like that anymore. This was great too. Cause this, and this is something I think the new films, I hope that they, uh, you know, I, the, the, the news out this week is that the third film is going to, um, be more reminiscent of the original show, whatever that means. But, uh, um, and you know, one of the things I think that defines Star Trek from the very beginning, from Corbomite Maneuver, uh, Balance of Terror, certainly seeing that here is that Kirk, Kirk needs to be on the bridge and uses his mind. You know, this, this argument that, that existed, uh, I think it's gone away now, but that somewhat Picard used his brain and Kirk used his brawn or whatever, that, that's so untrue. Uh, Kirk, Kirk is as, as smart as Picard. Um, um, maybe smarter because he's dealing with primitive in a way could we can call it primitive situations a little more often. Um, and uh, this is a great example of Kirk using his mind uh, to defeat his enemy and being on the bridge to do that. There, there seems to be a uh, hesitation to have Kirk on the bridge in the new films. You know, he, he isn't there a lot um, and really none of the resolutions to the stories occur there. And I think that, uh, that this is a great example to two times in the film where Kirk is on the bridge and he kind of bests Khan, um, you know, using his his intellect, which is obviously pretty substantial if he's able to defeat Khan, who is, you know, brilliant by superhuman standards. It helps, yeah, it to, have Spock. Me... It helps to have Spock there, too, you know. Yeah. <laughs> It took me years to realize, I mean, like, someone had to point it out to me that, that Kirk and Khan never meet. Mm -hmm. Like, like it's all through view screens and stuff. I mean, I never really realized that. And it, and it's brilliant. In the, in the new movies, they would be trying to figure out a way to drop the Reliance shields so that Kirk could beam over and punch Khan in the face. Yeah, in fact, I yeah, I mean, you know, and what's, other, what's, what's doubly amazing is they're not even acting to each other here. So yeah, that's Shatner, Shatner was not acting against Montalban. He was acting against a script person uh, who was reading Montalban's lines and vice versa. You know, I um, hope that he was doing an impression. <laughs> Kirk, <laughs> you have one. You have a minute. Um, well, you know, there was there there was in in the September um, eighty one. Uh, version of the script written by Nicholas Meyer, there was a scene where the two of them meet. Um, and that scene was to occur. There was no con yell in that script. Um, mm -hmm. what you, what you got was a scene that plays very, very closely to the Kruge Kirk fight in Star Trek three. Um, what happens is, you know, Kirk is taunting Khan saying, you know, if you want Genesis, you're going to have to come down here and get it. Um, and he does that. <laughs> he shows up <laughs> um, and he has swords with him, you know, old fashioned swords, not lightsabers, but old fashioned swords. And he challenges Kirk to a fight. And uh, McCoy basically tells, in fact, I have the dialogue uh, as it would have been if you guys wanted to hear it. 
Yeah, for sure. Yes. Yeah, Con, so Khan's on the ship, uh, and he says, um, you know, uh, I'll blow this planet into cinders and you with it. Kirk says, uh, he's he's in the cave, says, if you do that, you'll never have Genesis. Genesis Khan, the ultimate power. Um, then Yalcom says, and I'm not joking, he says it exactly, it's a trap, sir. I don't know if he says it like that. But he says, it's a trap, sir. He's baiting you. And Kirk says, I dare you to come and take it from me. And Yalcom pleads with him, in heaven's name, sir, let us repair the ship and leave this place. And Khan says, I could retrieve the coordinates from the space laboratory transporter room. I could beam up the entire Genesis project without you. And then Kirk says, do it. I'll give you the coordinates. You'll get nothing. I've disarmed the device and hidden the encoder. That's a lie. That's that's a ruse. Um, <laughs> Khan says, you challenge me. And Kirk says, the winner takes Genesis. So Khan beams down. Um, and uh, Khan says, winner takes all as the challenge party. The choice of weapons is mine. Kirk says, naturally. Bones says, you remember how strong he is. And Kirk says, all too well, this is not going to be a contest. You know, he knows he's going to get defeated. And Khan says, where is the device? And Kirk says, behind you in the tunnel. Are you ready? Uh, Khan says, I was ready long ago, Admiral. I've been ready for eons. My wife was ready, too. Uh, Kirk says, I'm not responsible for the death of Lieutenant MacGyver's Khan. You are. Uh, and Khan says, um, are we fighting or chatting? <laughs> uh, the, then the, the two of them fight. Uh, and then that's where he says, revenge is the best revenge, wouldn't you say? The encoder, where is it? And Kirk says, you'll have to kill me. And he be, he defeats uh, Kirk. Uh, and, of course, there's no encoder. So what happens is Khan then just leaves him. Uh, he does he abandons Kirk because he's going to punish him. So basically, then he's back on the ship. So literally that whole sequence, while it would have been cool because they would have been together and fighting, was not necessary to the story because he wind, they wind up in the same place at the end of that scene. And what you don't get is the emotional payoff. The emotional payoff is the fight between the two of them. Now the emotional payoff is Kirk yelling Khan, which is just, you know, I can't imagine my life without that moment in my life, you know. <laughs> uh, and, and so um, that is a great example of them. They never filmed that. And that was a great example of them knowing what would work and what 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 was a better option and the better option was to never have them meet and to have them always having verbal and intellectual fights let the ships pound each other the two of them uh you know would fight intellectually and fight verbally um and you know i think by editing out that scene uh that i frankly i also think that's wise because i think you would add a lot of people um comparing that to star wars because you've got you know even though there's swords it's still a sword fight in a science fiction film and it would have been an unfortunate comparison in a way um and uh, of course they would have acted way better than i read those lines and it would have been much more interesting but i i'm glad it wasn't there in a way because we get the better moment which is the two of them having that that interchange that they have that where the emotional payoff is the Kanye. It it does seem like a, a very TOS thing to do, though the you know the the primitive type of sword fight, you know, Squire of Gothos and that kind of stuff. Oh sure, sure, yeah. You know, and it does. But put I the do like characters. I do like the the intellectual battle more. But I think that you know, if I was on staff back in the day, I would have pushed for the the sword fight. Yeah, I mean, I think that's how you you know how does Lex Luthor fight Superman? He either has to get a Kryptonian armor suit by himself 
or you fight Superman with your mind, you know, and you fight him intellectually. Um, you give him some challenge, like two missiles going in two different directions, you know, that kind of thing. And so I think in some ways Kirk has that same dilemma, you know, physically he's no match in a way. He barely, I don't know how he beat Khan and space seed. We, no one knows what that tube was that somehow, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, 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 it's a fight that shouldn't have resolved that way in a way. Um, like it does in space seed considering how strong Khan is supposed to be. Um, you know, so, uh, um, you know, uh, I, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a moment that, you know, that, that, where if they were together, it would, they would have had to have been physical with each other and it's probably better. They weren't physical, you know, but yes, I do see that where, you know, you'd want to have them fighting like that. By the way, this scene here with the arms, the way they did that was those are just stunt people. They're being held by their feet um, at the top where you see uh, William Shatner right now. Originally, there were just other people holding them by their feet so they could film that scene. And then you actually, uh, we, we have pictures of William Shatner helping up the actors back up there so that they can continue filming. Uh, that scene, the stunts in the film, which are pretty substantial, real, uh, you know, and, and many of them spectacular, um, were done by uh, under the supervision of a man by the name of Bill Couch. Um, in fact, when Kirk even does this right here, when he when when he punches this, that's not William Shatner's hand. Uh, that's Bill Couch's hand. Uh, <laughs> punching it. Um, and uh, but Bill Couch not only performed the stunts, uh, showed him how to perform the stunts, uh, you know, and uh, showed him how to do that. You know, how do you how do you punch that uh, panel? I should say it's Shatner, but it was he was trained how to punch the panel, broke breakaway glass, and all that kind of stuff. Um, they uh, they uh, Bill Couch's family was a dynasty of and still is of stunts and Bill Couch's um, brother uh, was con stunt double in the space seat episode. So it's kind of neat, but, but it's weird because Bill Couch was the stunt double for Shatner. Um, he was also the trainer. So he would train Shatner. How to, how should you punch this? So you don't get hurt. You know, this glass, um, he worked on the fight sequence with, with him and, and, um, uh, Merrick Buttrick, and he also was con, so he was both, you know, the stunt corner, but also did stunts and did the stunts of the two main actors, you know, uh, the good guy and the bad guy in the film. So, uh, Bill Couch did a lot of great work on this movie. Well, thanks for listening to the first half of our commentary, The Wrath of Commentary. It's really fun talking with John Tenuto. It was so much fun that, well, I mean, it took the length of a movie. But that's not the only thing that we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. So here's what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. They're not going to just do something crazy and be like, what if we did Star Trek, but on Earth? What if we did Star Trek, but, you know, with, with more explosions or whatever? Wouldn't that be cool? And, and giant robots. Earl Grey. Between a combination of Riker's beard and the spandex, you could pretty much identify what season you were watching just by those two markers alone. No beard Riker? Must be season one. Pinstriping in the background, but Riker has a beard? Must be season two. The Ready Room. The Prime Directive 
is there and all these captains are constantly having to break it because it's obviously such a rigid rule right and uh you can't tell a story with such rigid right. rules so you go back to yeah, it's television it's drama the orb it's never clear like is costa Mojan, is that the name of a person from long ago or is it the name of a group of people and so you're saying that in the prophet's language costa Mojan is the name of the paw race Right, that's what they call the paw race. To the journey! Think about how horrible it would be perceived by the audience to see Neelix beaten up ruthlessly. Some people would really enjoy that. That's true, I'm talking about normal people with hearts and souls. Okay, so those people... (laughs) Commentary, Trek stars. Um, This means that really now, sort of, the the three of us are responsible for really getting the movie to to, to what it's going to be, and then there's a thing, okay, but the movie we write is the movie that's going to get made, which is... A really cool feeling, actually. Warp 5. You know, Spock and Tuvok are two Vulcans. And so I feel like if you brought 10 more into the room to say that they're all going to be the same is really a boring race. It's, even right. if they're logical, they shouldn't have the same personalities. Melodic Treks. But when J.J. Abrams came on, he was like, just in like casual... <laughs> T-shirt and jeans. T-shirt, and yeah. And because he'd just come from the set of... Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's a good so, excuse. Continuing mission. And there's this moment where you pass into it, and you're not only on a TV set, you're you're on a, a TV set that is a recreation of the Enterprise, and then that goes away, and then you're on the Enterprise. Literary Treks. This is what I expect from the uh, ongoing comics. This is kind of what I think we've wanted is, is just right. to have this crew yeah, start definitely. to feel like the original series in some ways. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and get in on the daily Trek talk. you find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, the Windows Podcast Directory for Xbox and Zune, or you can stream from the website. Just visit trek.fm slash pd for podcast directory to get all the links. We had a message through the website uh, Chris C.B. Spock, he wrote in again, and he said, Just listen to your spinoff episode. One of the spinoffs you missed was the original Galactica. There were references to Tilium and Ovians and Voyager. Also, another Alias reference was the Red Matter. In seasons one and two of Alias, Sidney was trying to steal a device that used Red Matter, and it even looked the same like a giant red ball. Yeah, I didn't know about the BSG one. The The Red Matter... I mean, that's, a, I don't know, I, I see that as a bit of iffy territory because it's not, I don't know if it's necessarily supposed to be the same red matter or if that's just a thing that he has running through his his shows almost coincidentally. But yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, if, if you want to leave us a message and share your thoughts, just go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send a show and choose standard orbit. That'll come to both of us by email. You can also use the tab on any page to send us a voicemail using your webcam's microphone, and you can talk to us and other listeners on our forums at trek.fm slash forums. In social media, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm, and on Twitter under username trek.fm. Mike, where can people find you out of orbit? Uh, you can find me right here on trek.fm doing commentary, Trek Stars. Uh, and for those original series people who may be interested, we did just talk to uh, J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay, the writers of the new Star Trek movie. So 
uh, go ahead and check that out. You can also find me on commentarytrackstars.com where I can where I do commentary track stars off topic. And you can find me on Twitter at mumbles3k. You can find me on Twitter at 005, D-O-U-B-L-E-O-F-I-V-E. And you can find me guesting on various other places around the network. We've been getting some iTunes reviews, which is great, because reviews are very important to us. Not only because we love to hear what you think about the show, because it helps impact how we place in iTunes and Stitcher. Reviews make it easier for other Trek fans to find our shows. We know that it does take some extra time to visit iTunes and Stitcher to write the reviews, so as an added incentive to share your thoughts on our shows, we're giving away some great prizes as part of a month-long promotion. These include a season of Star Trek, Your Choice, on Blu-ray or DVD, an official Starship's collection ships from Japan, complete with Japanese magazines, Star Trek novels, and a full collection of our alien art badges. Winners will be drawn at random from all entries received before midnight Pacific time on July 31st. All you need to do to enter is leave a rating and review on iTunes and or Stitcher. You can only leave one review per show, of course, but you can review multiple shows and do so on both iTunes and Stitcher. And for each review, you will receive one entry into the drawing. Remember, you can also review the master feed, and that'll give you an intro as well. There are two steps for entering. Leave a review on iTunes and or Stitcher, and visit trek.fm slash review and complete the form. We're looking forward to hearing from you, and thank you for your support. And also, before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring Standard Orbit to you each week, and that sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from, and new titles coming every week, from classics to current bestsellers and even some of the most famous Star Trek books like Prime Directive, Federation, and Spock's Worlds. Audible has something for everyone. Mike, what do you have for everyone? Well, I have a book which I think we might have talked about before, but that was a while ago, so we can talk about it again. It's Star Trek The Eugenics Wars, The Rise and Fall of Khan, Nooni, and Singh, which was written Ooh. by Greg Cox, and it's narrated by Anthony Stewart Head, uh, who was on, like, Buffy or something, right? Oh, is it? Giles. Oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah, Giles. So um, here's the description. Even centuries later, the final decades of the 20th century are still regarded as one of the darkest and most perilous chapters in the history of humanity. Now, as an ancient and forbidden technology tempts mankind once more, Captain James T. Kirk of the Starship Enterprise must probe deep into the secrets of the past to discover the true origins of the dreaded eugenics wars and of perhaps the greatest foe he has ever faced. Um, Himself. No, maybe. No. I think I think there's someone in the room who's actually read this thing. Thumbs up or thumbs down, Max? Book two, thumbs down. Book one, thumbs up. Book two, thumbs down. Book one, thumbs up. We're talking about book one here, and you can get that for free here on. Uh, well, since you listen to Trek FM, you can get it for free on Audible.com. Is basically a Gary Seven story. I mean, come this on. This is the greatest moment of my life. Yes, this is the greatest moment of Drew's life. <laughs> now he's yes. just confused. <laughs> anyway, okay. <laughs> and and you know what the greatest moment of our, our listeners' lives will be when they get this book for free on audible.com. That's right. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. So give it a try today. Catch up on all those classic Star Trek books you've yet to read and that latest novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we thank Audible for supporting Standard Orbit and Trek FM. And we thank Max for the in-studio review. 
<laughs> yes, we do. And also, TrekFan. It's a great way for you to take your love of Star Trek and put it into action. At TrekFan, you'll explore new places, learn new things, and collaborate with other fans to solve puzzles, complete real-life mission objectives, and win great prizes. Challenges include communications, engineering, and flight operations. There's internet relay chat, free books through Starfleet Academy, and much more. Best of all, it's absolutely free. Not just free to play, but completely free. Find out more by visiting fm.trekfan.org. Again, that's fm.trekfan.org. And remember to use this special URL so they know you heard about it here on Standard Orbit and Trek FM. So everybody, be sure to tune in next week where you can hear the last half of the commentary. And until then, thanks for listening. Have a good week and keep on trekking. It is the will of Landry. Mr. Chekhov, take us out of orbit ahead. Walk factor one. Hi, sir.